me this morning in your Bibles uh, to the book of Jonah, page 735 in my Bible. That's any help to you. If you go past uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Lamentations and Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, then you come to the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah and Jonah. A little book you'll find in there, the fifth of the minor prophets. And uh, so I want you to have a good browse through that portion of your Bible. It's the Old Testament. <laughs> Whatever Bible you've got or electronic device. I must tell you a little story. She's not here this morning, so I can tell this. Mrs. Bloomfield one time said to me, for those of you who don't know Mrs. Bloomfield, she's the eldest uh, member of the church. Uh, some time ago, she called me over. She says, Pastor, uh, I hate to tell you this, but see those young ones over there? See when you're preaching? They're on those phones and they're doing that old business. What do you call that old texting business just to each other? And I says, no, Miss Bloomfield, that's actually their Bibles. No, she says, no, it's not their Bibles. It's their phones. <laughs> so I had to take my phone out and show her the Bible. She says, well, I never. You mean you get a Bible on your phone? <laughs> So, so she doesn't look at you if you've got your phone in your hand now anymore. All right, the book of Jonah. Was there ever a more reluctant preacher than Jonah in the long, illustrious history of preaching and preachers? Was there ever a man who tried so hard to disobey the call and the clear commands of God than Jonah? Jonah was given by God an unprecedented opportunity to birth one of the greatest revivals the world has ever seen. And yet he fought so terribly hard to prevent it, to stop it, even before it got off the ground. Surely he was the world's most reluctant preacher. Well, you may say, what has that got to do with me? Because I'm neither a preacher nor a prophet. Well, all these things, the Bible says, were written for our admonition. And so as we begin to unpack this story, then hopefully you will see that it does have some bearing in our lives. And sometimes whenever we read these things and ask the Holy Spirit to open up the eyes of our heart, uh, then we'll see uh, that we just may have more in common with Jonah than actually we think we have. Now, of the 17 prophetical books of the Old Testament... Uh, there are the writings of the four major uh, prophets, as I said a moment ago, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations. And then of the 12 minor prophets, there, of course, was the fifth one here, which is Jonah. Now, whenever we say minor prophets, we're not saying about their status. Uh, each prophet was as important as the other one. So whenever we use the term minor, we're actually referring to their writings, uh, and most of the writings were quite brief, small, just maybe one, two, three, or four chapters. With only two exceptions, most of them are very, very small. So that's where the term minor comes from. So let's begin to read just a little bit, the first three verses just at this point. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish 
from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now the first thing we see here about Jonah was that he was very disobedient to the call and the command of God. Now we have no reason to believe that this was normal for him as a prophet. We have every reason to believe that he was a dedicated and efficient and a good, upright, honest man of God. One that obeyed the Lord many, many times. Which is why the Lord came to him in the first place. However, it seems to be that maybe in this occasion, because God was challenging him to do something that was against his grain, something that he really did not want to do, that here we find him having no heart or stomach to obey the call of God in this command. Had it been anybody but the Ninevites, had it been anywhere but Nineveh, he would have obeyed in a heartbeat. But Nineveh? Surely, God, you cannot be serious sending me to the Ninevites, that wicked, cruel, evil, pagan people, the Assyrians. Surely, God, you don't want me to go there of all places. I mean, it's hard enough preaching to the Israelites. It's hard enough preaching to my stiff neck, prone to wonder, hard-hearted Israelites. But Lord, to ask me to go to Nineveh, never. I can't do it. I won't do it. And with that, he packed his bags and off he went in a great big huff. Now you have to understand, of course, that the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were a particularly wicked people indeed. They were not only idolatrous and warlike, but they were extremely cruel. Uh, whenever they conquered, whenever they fought, uh, what they did to their prisoners was unbelievably cruel. They were wicked beyond words. In fact, if I can just read a little portion from the book of Nahum, just a few pages over. Uh, Nahum actually later on was to uh, pronounce God's judgment upon them. But he says in chapter 3 of Nahum, Woe to the bloody city! It is full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mystery of sorceries who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. That gives you a little flavor of what these people were actually really like. Not only that, but they were a bitter enemy of Israel. They hated Israel with a passion, and the feeling was mutual. The Israelites hated them also. Not only that, but they had a great fortress city. Nineveh was huge. Uh, 
by ancient standards. Historians tell us that it had walls surrounding it 100 feet high that you could drive three chariots abreast across and that the walls around the city were almost eight miles in circumference. Plus outside that were all the suburbs. So this was a huge ancient metropolis. It was almost impregnable. And so why we cannot excuse uh, the reluctance and the disobedience of the prophet, of Jonah the preacher, but we can't from a human perspective at least begin to understand why he didn't go if the reason was he simply was afraid and who would not be afraid to walk into the enemy's camp alone into their capital city. Or perhaps he thought, why should I go on a 500-mile journey only to get there to be ridiculed and maybe run out of town and laughed at. Why should I do that? God's commands are not always sensible or acceptable to human reasoning. I mean, this was just beyond his human reasoning. You have to understand, of course, that going to his bitterest enemies was just it was just way too much in his reckoning, even for God to expect him to do. Remember Peter, when he lay on the roof of Simon the Tanner in the book of Acts, and how that God came to him and showed him that great sheet with all of those non-kosher foods. And God says, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. And he says, Not so, Lord. No way. Can't do it. It's common, it's unclean, I can't touch it. And God had to show him that three times. And then suddenly those three Gentiles turned up on his doorstep, looking at him to come to the house of the centurion. And then he began to realize, because God says, what I, what I do not call, what I have cleansed, do not call common or unclean. Go with these men. And then what a breakthrough into the Gentile world the gospel had. But it took a lot of convincing, didn't it, for Peter to do that. And so here is this reluctant prophet. It wasn't sensible in his mind, certainly wasn't acceptable. How would we feel if God would come to us with something he wanted us to do that we felt was neither sensible or acceptable, that went against the grain of our nature. It went against our sensibilities. What we think would be fair or right. Surely God would not expect me to do that. How would we react? Would we do it? Despite how we felt? Or would we be like Jonah the preacher? Would we just say, well that's it, I'm out of here. And head off. And so God tells Jonah to go east. And he goes west. <laughs> Should have went to Nineveh. If you're wondering where Nineveh is or was, uh, it, would, it would be today, it would be in modern day Iraq. It would be about 250 miles north of Baghdad on the Tigris River. That's where it would have been. That's where it was. That's where it would be if it was here today. 
So that's where he should have went. But instead he went totally in the opposite direction. And he ended off just off the coast of Spain, somewhere near Gibraltar. I mean, he just could not get any further away from where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. It says in verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. How many people know this morning that you can't outrun God? That he's going to catch up with you? Can't play hide and seek with God? Remember Adam and Eve tried to do that? Ran from the presence of the Lord when he came into the garden? But he knew exactly where they were, didn't he? Surely an Old Testament prophet like Jonah, who came along after the Psalms were written, surely he would have remembered Psalm 137. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. See, when it comes to God, you can run, but you can't hide. And God has got immense patience. <laughs> Not willing that any should perish, Peter said. And so sometimes God may come to us and he may challenge us in an area that we don't like. We neither think that it's right or that it's right for us. And we go on the run like Jonah. And we do our level best to avoid doing the thing that he wants us to do. But God finds us because there's no escape from God. Notice in verse 3 it says, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he prayed to, paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 5, Jonah went down into the lowest part of the ship. <laughs> when they threw him overboard, he went down into the sea, and he went down into the belly of the great fish. Turning away from God is always and ever a downward path. It may be a slow descent, it may be a fast descent, but it's downward. God says, arise and go to Nineveh. But now he's going to be going down. And many a man, many a woman has found that out. That when they disobey God, their life takes a downward spiral. Verse 3, it says, so he paid the fare. He bore the full cost. Walking away from God's will will be costly. Mark that. It will be costly. And not only will it cost us, but it may cost others around us. It may cost her family. It may cost some friends. But it will cost. Old Donald Gray Barnhouse, great old preacher of old, Remarks about Jonah paying the fare. And he said he did not get to where he was going since he was thrown overboard. But he did not get to the end of his journey. So he paid the full fare. And he did not get to the end of his journey. Barnhouse also said, It is always that way when you run away from the Lord. You never get to where you're going and you always pay your own fare. 
Do you remember what happened to Amran and Jochebed, the parents of Moses? Remember that time in Exodus when the Pharaoh had given the order that all the little Hebrew babies that would be born were to be murdered? They're to be thrown in the Nile? You remember how by faith Hebrews tells us that Jochebed, how that she made that little ark of bulrushes and she put little baby Moses in and set him sailed down the Nile knowing that Pharaoh's daughter bathed there at a certain time in the morning and how she told Miriam, Moses' older sister, to go and watch to see what would happen and how that she did that by faith and whenever Pharaoh's daughter found the little baby, heard the little cry, compassion rose in her heart and she decided to spare that little child. And Miriam, who was just posted close by, ran over and said, would you like a Hebrew nurse to take care of that wee baby? <laughs> oh yes, could you get me one? Yes, I can. And she went and got her mom. And when she got her mother, in Exodus 2 verse 9, it says, then Pharaoh's daughter said to Jochebed, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. I will pay your fare. See, whenever we do God's will, and we do it by faith, God will pay the expenses. God will pay the fare. Many a man, many a woman, in the work of the Lord especially, has found that, that God has paid the fare that God has found a way where there is no way possible, but God paid the fare. But if you go your own way, and we disobey the Lord, and we head in the opposite direction of His will, then we will pay the fare. We will bear the full cost, the brunt of it. And then, in, chapter, or sorry, in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, But... The Lord sent a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Now the Lord God is a jealous God. He loves His children, all of us, but He's jealous for us. And anything that comes between us and Him, He's jealous for us. And so God was desperate to get this man to turn, to repent, to change the direction of his life. And so it says the Lord sent a great wind. And the word for sent is hurled. The Lord hurled a great wind. Now this was no ordinary wind. This was not Nature taking its course. God was involved in this. These mariners had been sailors probably from their wee boys. They had been in many a storm, but they had never seen a storm like this one. This was the perfect storm. This was a massive storm. The Lord sent or hurled a great wind. You see, God is a jealous God. And God is a will and God is a program and God is a plan for our lives. And for other people's lives through us. 
There was a people to be saved. There was a city to be spared. And Jonah was the man God had chosen to go and to preach the message. And so he's going to do what it takes to turn this man around. And so the Lord hurled out a great wind. And so when this storm arose, what happened? Well, these pagan men did what any pagan man would do. Let's read it. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. And so they did what any pagan would do. They were in a desperate, tight situation where their very lives were at risk. They cried out unto their gods. Some people get very religious when it comes to matters of life and death, don't they? And then they did what any mariner would do in a storm. They lightened the ship. They threw out as much stuff as they could fearing that it would sink. But then unbelievably, look what it says in verse 5, but Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. You can hardly believe it, can you? In the midst of that mighty storm, when the sailors, the experts, were fearing for their very lives, Here's Jonah, and he's sleeping sound as a baby. But you see, this is typical of those who run away from the will of God. They become oblivious to the cries of those around them, to the cries of the unsaved, to the cries of the people who know that their lives are in danger and they're crying out for somebody to help them. as they were, to their gods who were never going to answer. And Jonah is oblivious to the whole thing because he doesn't care. God's will and God's ways are no longer his priority. You see, when the backslider runs away from God, it seems peaceful for a while. It seems to be at rest for a while. No church to attend. No Bible readings to do, no devotions, avoiding Christian contact, putting a distance between ourselves and other believers, just like Jonah. And for a while it seems to be peaceful. You're out from under the pressure. <laughs> but it doesn't last because storms come. And storms in life do come to everyone. And so here's Jonah resting, sleeping, while those around him are about to perish. In verse 6 and 9, sorry, 6 to 9, let's just read a, bit, a little bit further. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? The captain couldn't believe that somebody could be sleeping through this. Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us that we may not perish. Isn't it amazing how the backslider 
particularly. Or the one who's on the run from the will of God. Isn't it amazing how many times God will get an unsaved person to speak to them? Isn't that amazing? It happens all the time. Someday in work. They're trying so hard to avoid talking about the things of God and the people of God and suddenly somebody comes to them. It happened to Jonah. This man said, Surely you've got a God. I mean, everybody worships a God. That's what he's thinking. We have tried our gods. Nothing's happening. Well, what about your God? Who do you believe in? What's your beliefs? Perhaps your God will consider us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause this trouble is, sorry, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Out of what people are you? suddenly they begin to realize there's something different about this guy. He's not like one of us. Here we are, frightened for our very lives, and he has been fast asleep all the time in the midst of this terrible storm. Who is this man? Where does he come from? What's his occupation? What's his life? Who's his God? I want you to notice the answer. So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Ah. Ah. He's been caught on, and now he has to own up. And many a backslider, many a person on the run from God's will has been caught on and had to own up and say, do you know what? I'm a believer. I'm not in the place I should be. I'm on the run from God. And that's exactly what happened to Jonah. Notice he said, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. These people wanted this raging sea to be calm and they certainly wanted to get to dry land. And it was his God who made the sea and made the dry land. So now they've got some hope. Their gods have done nothing for them. If his God truly is the God that made the sea and the dry land, well, there's hope for us. Our God is the God who made the sea and the dry land. And there's hope for a dying world out there. And if they come to you and they come to me, we ought to be able to give them hope, shouldn't we, as believers? Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous.
And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. <laughs> Could you believe this, man? Think of this for a moment. All he had to do was to stop the raging of the sea. All he had to do was turn around and say, God, I'm sorry. My fault. I'm sorry. Take me back and I'll go to Nineveh. That's all he had to do. Simple as that. Just immediately repent and say, Sorry, Lord. Don't know what came over me. Got it wrong. I'll obey your will. And suddenly the wind would have stopped, but he didn't. You know what he did? In effect, he says, I would rather die than to do God's will. That's how bad this man was. I would rather die. I'd rather you drown me than for me to go to Nineveh and preach a message. <laughs> I mean, he's pretty bad, isn't he? I mean, how further backslid can you get than this preacher? I mean, it's bad, isn't it? I notice this, verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. In spite of what he said, they were going to try everything they could to stop having to throw this man overboard. They had more compassion on him and mercy on him than he was going to have on the Ninevites. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now notice here they're acknowledging the one true and the living God. Their gods have not helped them at all. There's only one God can help them here and that's the true and living God. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging immediately, instantly. So this was no ordinary storm. And boy, they knew it. And now if they didn't know it, they're going to know it now because as soon as they throw him in, suddenly the storm ceases. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they took vows. Isn't it ironic that the man who wouldn't obey God and go and preach a message to the pagans in Nineveh is the very man that God, in the midst of the storm, is the very man that God uses to save these pagans on board the ship. Isn't that amazing? How God can do things like that. It's unfortunate that the story of Jonah, if I can use this term, got swallowed up in the story of the great fish. People get hung up about this great fish. The Bible never ever calls it a wheel. What does it say? 
verse 17, the last verse of the first chapter. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the sperm whale eats squid. Giant squid. Bigger than men. And they have been found by whalers to have squids whole, complete, in their bellies when they cut them open. So technically, it is possible for a whale even to swallow a man, depending on the type of whale. Of course, some are plankton eaters. Sperm whale isn't. But it doesn't say it's a whale. It just says God prepared a great fish. And it swallowed him whole. Now, over the years, all kinds of liberal theologians, put it that way, has tried to discount this story and to say it's allegorical or it's metaphorical or it's just a story. It's just trying to make a point, but don't really believe that it was actually authentic, that actually a man actually lived for three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's impossible. God's not really trying to say, he's only using that as an example. You've got to be careful whenever you downplay and try to water down what God has said. If God wanted this to be just a story, he would have told us that, but this was fact. And Jesus authenticated this story of Jonah as fact. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 12. Verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Nothing could be more clear than that. Do you think Jesus was just using that as a, a, an allegorical example or some metaphor for something? No, of course he wasn't. That was a fact. And he used it as an example of him, what was going to happen to him. He said, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they re because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Luke 11 also, he authenticates the same story as being genuine and as being real. Now the Lord wasn't about to let Jonah off the hook that easily. He sent a great storm and he prepared a great fish. Now, we haven't finished with the story and it's too late for me to go on and finish it this morning, so I shall continue tonight. 
God hasn't finished with this man. And there's lots of men, lots of women that God hasn't finished with yet either. And they may be on the run today. And they may be walking away from the will of God today. And they may have been backslidden. They may have gone terribly cold in heart. But God hasn't finished with them yet. And God will do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to get them back. Because he's a jealous God. And he was jealous for this man to do the right thing. And so as we look into this tonight, as we follow on, and as we finish it tonight, you're going to see amazingly what happens whenever Jonah goes to Nineveh and a great revival breaks out. It's a wonderful thing to see a revival break out. And this was an exceptional revival that broke out. And then to see how Jonah responded to that is almost unbelievable as well. And so we're going to do that tonight. By God's grace, we'll look at the rest of it. And by the way, we only got to that first chapter, but the other three we'll do very quickly. All right? So let's pray.